Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. Today's episode features a conversation on the truth about Mary between Patrick Madrid, Marcus Grodi, and our founder, Bud McFarlane. Like her son, Jesus, Mary is one of the most well-known yet misunderstood persons in all of human history. Now, these two experts, including a former Protestant minister, explain what the Catholic Church really teaches about Mary of Nazareth. So sit in on this captivating conversation and learn something new about the Mother of God. But first, if you ever considered becoming a Catholic or are a Catholic seeking to deepen your relationship with Christ, please visit us at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, relic prayer medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's twice-a-month Catholic City email message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com, which is the online home of the Mary Foundation. Since the dawn of the internet, we've been a world leader in delivering proven, free, or low-cost tools for evangelization right to your door. And now, let's begin. Hello, everyone. We're in the blue room of the Mary Foundation Studios with Marcus Grodi and Pat Madrid. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Good morning. Very good. Let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pat, I understand you have some quotations from a well-known Christian writer. I do. These are quotations that you may not have heard before about our Blessed Lady. Would you like to hear them? Sure. Okay. There are a couple of different ones here. I'll start with this one. She, the lady above heaven and earth, must have a heart so humble that she might have no shame in washing the swaddling clothes or preparing a bath for St. John the Baptist like a servant girl. What humility! It would surely have been more just to have arranged for her a golden coach pulled by 4,000 horses and to cry and proclaim as the carriage proceeded, Here passes the woman who is raised above the whole human race. She was not filled with pride by this praise, this immense praise. No woman is like unto thee. Thou art more than an empress or a queen, blessed above all nobility, wisdom, or saintliness. Or in another uh, passage, another place where this man wrote, he said, May she enlighten our intelligences, inflame our hearts, and inspire our whole life. May Christ grant us this grace through the intercession of his holy mother. Wow. Beautiful, isn't it? Obviously, that guy loved the Blessed Mother. He did, but you may be surprised who he was. Now, Marcus would be familiar with him. Yes. It sounds like there was a bit of revisionism that's happened over the last few years. Let's say the last couple hundred years. Right. Because after all, that was Martin Luther. <laughs> Amazing. And Martin Luther. He was, as we know, he was the founder of the, at least the progenitor of the Protestant Reformation. And these words, ironically, were not written when he was a Catholic monk, but these were written decades later, not long before his death. And there were many other things that he wrote in praise of Mary, which is not to say that Martin Luther believed everything that the Catholic Church teaches about our Blessed Lady, or that he was always consistent in his approach to our Blessed Lady. But one thing is clear to me, and that is that, as you were alluding to, Marcus, modern-day people know an awful lot less about the Blessed Virgin Mary's role in the plan of salvation than even many of the Reformers did 500 years ago. Just referring for a second, uh, in my own journey to the Catholic Church, um, I 
came to recognize that much of what I had learned about the founders of the Protestant movement, much of what I had learned was a whole lot different than, in fact, they taught themselves, because many of the followers in their anti-Catholicism had to clean up the act of the founders. You mean to, to ignore what they said? To ignore what they really said sometimes or what they really believed because it could be misconstrued to sound too Catholic. As a result, many Protestants today do not understand, especially in the area of Mary, what Calvin and Luther believed. But the sad thing is, it's the same thing with many modern Catholics themselves, living in the neighborhood surrounded by Protestant brothers and sisters, neighbors and families, wanting to live in an ecumenical age, in love, uh, charitable relationships, that in the process, many modern Catholics are not as clear about their understanding of Mary and what the Church really teaches about Mary. Well, that's a good place to start then. Let's talk um, about the role that Mary, the mother of Jesus, should play in the life of a Christian. Great. Well, Marcus, you were uh, a Protestant at one time, and I was born and raised Catholic, so uh, <clears throat> or technically I was born heathen like everyone else, baptized at two or three weeks old, and now from that point I was a Catholic. But I'm always curious about converts and what their experience was with regard to Mary, how they looked at Mary prior to coming into the church. And I've thought about this a lot lately. Because I was brought up Lutheran and then eventually uh, ordained Presbyterian, Mary was not a part of my life at all. We thought of her at Christmas time, period. And in fact, never focused on uh, directly. Our focus was on Jesus uh, and then Mary on the side, mm -hmm. only her relationship to his birth. Uh, seeing her almost as chosen by accident by God, never a, a central part of his plan. But I recognized in my own journey that I wasn't particularly anti-Catholic. It's just that my Protestant background and uh, forebears had fought those battles. And by the time the faith was delivered to me, Mary wasn't even a part of the equation. We're speaking today on the Feast of the Annunciation. Right. Um, the, the fact is that it never even crossed my mind to look at that text in Scripture in Luke 1 to, to even think of it in the way the Catholic Church presents it. It wasn't as if I, I, I heard the teaching and then reacted against it. I never heard it. And as I think then in relationship to Catholics today, uh, many of them with the idea of, again, this ecumenical idea, are they presented clearly what the Church teaches also? And what have they picked up? As a, We can talk later about this, but... One of the tools that we used as a Protestant to pull Catholic young people, young adults, young families out of the Catholic Church was, in fact, the doctrines of Mary. How'd you do it? Well, we recognized that so many Catholics uh, don't understand what the Church teaches about Mary or in their own piety have, in, in time, have picked up some bad understandings. And I'll tell you what we used to do. We... We would take a young person and we would say, uh, you know, why is it that your parents worship Mary? And the young person might say, well, they don't. And then we'd say, well, how much do they talk about Mary? And she would recognize that, yeah, they would talk a lot at home about Mary. How much do they talk about Jesus? And they would recognize that they don't talk a whole lot about Jesus or the relationship between Mary and Jesus. And so there's this young person without a foundation for their faith, yeah. and we would just take them from there. And then in the end, not only would this young person proclaim, um, I've found Jesus, I've been saved, but I've also been saved from the whore of Babylon. 
And so and there goes Mary, too, because Mary. that's associated with the Whore of Babylon. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we, as Catholics, need to make sure our young people know Jesus, but also know Mary to whom he pointed. Right. And we know the right relationship. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I've got a, a couple of bits of advice that I give to Catholics when I'm speaking. First thing is, <clears throat> you want to... You want to remember this whole idea of the full gospel. You, you drive down the street in your town, and you see these full gospel churches. Well, really, the full gospel includes Mary, and it includes things like purgatory and the sacraments and the papacy and so forth. But for our discussion today, Mary is part of the full gospel. So two things I tell Catholics. One is, if you minimize or hide or are embarrassed by Marian doctrines and the other doctrines of the faith, and seek to exclude them from your presentation of the Catholic faith, you're really doing a disservice to your hearer, to the person that you're sharing the faith with, because you're, you, you are not giving the full gospel, you're giving a partial gospel by, by eliminating. The second thing, though, and this is, I believe, just as important, is that you don't want to just walk up to somebody and blurt out all of a sudden all sorts of things that are maybe that should come second or third or fourth in line or, or later in line after you've set up a few other things first, doctrinally speaking. In other words, you don't grab a Southern Baptist by the shoulders and look him in the eyes and say, listen, brother, I want to tell you why you need to be wearing the brown scapular of Our Lady Mount Carmel. <laughs> you know, you don't start yeah. there. But at a certain point in the organic growth of, of your discussion, you're going to want to have the, the proper explanation of Mary and Marian doctrines at the right time. So it's this balance. We we never want to exclude or minimize her, but on the other hand, we have to be prudent. Remember, Jesus said, uh, there are some things you can't bear right now that he told the apostles, and later on, you'll get those things. Yeah, there's a, a, a text in Ephesians that is very important for us to remember. It says in Ephesians 4, this balance, it says that we must speak the truth in love. And especially today in this overemphasized ecumenism, uh, we err too often on the love side. We think we're being more loving by holding back some things that seem to be stumbling blocks per se. But as you said, what we're doing is we're robbing them from the fullness of the truth. Mm. We're called to speak the truth, not use it as a cudgel, but to, to use it because we love them. Right. They need to understand Mary and how God has spoken to us through Mary and has given us the greatest gift that we have, Christ, through Mary. Well, that's a perfect uh, way to introduce some of the meat about this talk today. Pat, you had some points regarding Mary as prefigured in the Old Testament and uh, an interesting point about Jesus and Mary. Well, we've got, there's so, such a wealth of information that we could talk about um, scripturally about Mary. When, I, when I'm speaking about Mary in a conference or at a seminar, I think that one of the best places for a Catholic to be nourished in his understanding of Mary is in scripture. And very often people turn immediately to the Gospel of Luke and begin reading about Mary, and, and we pick up the story there. But I think that there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of riches to be found in the Old Testament. And by going through several key places in the Old Testament, we can begin to see a pattern emerge in Scripture. And that is that God not only was preparing the world for the church and the sacraments and the mass, and of course, our Lord, his death on the cross and, and the redemption. But he was also periodically preparing us for Mary and showing us all the way from the time of the Garden of Eden, showing us that Mary was coming. She would be this woman who would be 
present. And so some examples of that that we see uh, would be, for example, in Genesis 3.15, where God is speaking to Adam and Eve and the serpent after the original sin had been committed. He curses Adam and Eve and he curses creation. And he gives a special curse to the the serpent where he says that the the seed of the woman shall crush your head and you shall lie in wait for his heel and strike at his heel. And there are, there are two legitimate ways to translate this passage. One is that she will crush your head and he will crush your head, referring to the offspring of the woman. Now, this is what the theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. It's like the very first encapsulated expression of the gospel of Christ, which we find here in Genesis 3.15. And this motif of the woman shows up throughout the Old Testament, shows up again, obviously, with Mary in the New Testament. Another instance that we see is in the Ark of the Covenant. And you you see in a, a great emphasis on the Ark of the Covenant insofar as it is the special container in which God, in his word, his written word, was carried about among his people for lo those many centuries. Now, you know, maybe some of our listeners haven't been haven't lately read the book of Exodus or or Second Samuel chapter 6 or Chronicles, but they probably have seen the movie Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, <laughs> if they've seen the movie, then they've gotten a little Bible history there, the Hollywood version, but the box that's depicted is this Ark of the Covenant, and its purpose was to carry around the Word of God in Scripture. Now, what's interesting about this is that we very often refer to our Blessed Lady as the Ark of the New Covenant because she carried in her womb for nine months the word of God in flesh. And just as the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament had the central role, the central place in the the life and worship of Israel, our Blessed Lady is right at the core of the Catholic Church as well. And she she stands at at the foot of the cross. She's the one who is, is showing us Christ. And so as we go through the Old Testament, we see many examples of, of this Ark of the Covenant. Let me just give you three parallels with our Blessed Lady. We'll move quickly through those. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see an incident take place with uh, King David recovering the Ark of the Covenant that had been lost in a battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines were this uh, bloodthirsty pagan tribe that did everything they could to destroy Israel. Bad guys. They were the bad guys, yeah. Um the Philistines captured the ark in a battle because Israel was living poorly. They were not living according to God's precepts. They weren't praying. They weren't you know, following true religion. So the ark gets lost to the Philistines. David rallies his troops and he says, we're going back after the ark. We're going to pray and fast and prepare spiritually before we go back into this battle. They go back into the battle. They route the Philistines. They recapture the ark. So the scene is the city of David Jerusalem is where the ark is being brought back. The parallel to this passage is in Luke chapter 1 with Mary. It goes like this. The first parallel is, as the ark is being brought into the city, borne on the shoulders of, of these troops, David is overcome with fear, and he the fear of the Lord, and he utters these prophetic words. He says, who am I that the ark of the Lord should come to me? Now that, of course, is a parallel to what Elizabeth says to our blessed lady. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The second parallel is that David performs this dance before the Ark of the Lord, and it's described in various ways in Scripture, but probably the best way to describe it is he was leaping with abandon. He was so happy. He was just leaping and hopping around and dancing. And in fact, he, he made such a spectacle that his wife actually got angry with him 
and uh, and they wound up having a, a marital spat over this. That is a direct pa- parallel with St. John the Baptist leaping for joy when the Ark of the New Covenant, our Blessed Virgin Mary, our Blessed Mother, came to Elizabeth. So Elizabeth utters those words. John the Baptist leaps for joy. Then the third parallel is that David, after this dance was performed and the celebrations were underway, he said, we're not worthy to have the Ark of the Lord present in our midst until we are fully purified ourselves. So he diverts the Ark of the Lord up into the hill country of Judea to the household of Abedadam. And there the Ark of the Lord remained for three months. And there's a little footnote in 2 Samuel 6, which says that while the Ark was present, the presence of the Ark blessed the household of Abedadam. Now that's a euphemism, blessed the household of Abedadam. It was an Old Testament Hebrew way of saying made the crops grow, made the women pregnant, made the animals give birth to, to new offspring. The parallel in, in Luke 1 is where does our blessed lady go right after the Annunciation? She goes up into the hill country of Judea for three months to the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah and look at what God had done in the lives of Elizabeth and Zechariah just prior to Mary's visitation. And that was giving birth, blessing their household with life, bringing life out of all of this. And I'm sure if we had... Uh three hours here. We oh, can continue these parallels to the Old Testament to oh, the New. There's, there's plenty, and, and I'm sorry we couldn't go deeper. That's just to give you some examples of, of that Old Testament prefigurement. Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to throw one on top of that. Sure, a little sure. different perspective, but I think in terms of where does Mary fit into the plan of God. When you listen to the language of the prophecy of Genesis 3, when God speaks and says, I will put enmity. Yes. I will it's going to happen. Right. It's God's plan. I will do this. Then you listen to the language of the angel to Mary. And what does he say? Behold, you will conceive in your womb at birth. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. This, this is, is not a suggestion. <laughs> this this was God's decree. This God's choice. God's plan. Yeah. This was a part of it all along. The right. same God would not have gone to another woman and, and asked. No. Mary this is the mystery prepared. of Mary's absolute free will. Her, the, the, the integrity of her will is completely intact. But what you're pointing out is that God's sovereign purpose was being carried out and it was not, I mean, his plan to save humanity would not be thwarted. And the beautiful mystery is how Mary's yes corresponded in full freedom. It was an authentic yes. It was a free yes. And it's a juxtaposed against Adam and Eve's no. They're no, right? Exactly right. The same freedom. And uh, Mary in this position not like all of God's plans are all of a sudden uh, hinging on hinging on whether she says yes or no. God wasn't holding his breath. No, it's going to happen. He said, this is going to happen. The issue is, are you going to cooperate? Are you going to freely be a part of this? There's the option. And it reminds us of where we are in relationship to uh, Mary as a model for us. Right. In these examples, Old Testament, New Testament are brought right back to us, is that every single one of us is a part of God's plan. God is going to work through us to our families in our lives. Are we going to say yes, just like Mary? Well, that's something when I was younger, I always kind of drew a blank when people would tell me that Mary would be my model. I can see very easily how Christ would be our model, that we should carry our crosses, that we should heal the sick, that we should help the poor, that we should preach the truth. But when it came to Mary as a model, I thought, how can I relate? She was perfect. She uh, was conceived without sin. I'm, I'm a sinful man myself. Uh, I know, Pat, you have some really interesting material. Well, there there are some things that, I mean, at a practical level, you could answer like this. If somebody were to raise the question, I would say, sure, I I am not in exact parallel with Mary. And in the same way that that 
Mary was was born free from all sin and preserved free from all sin for her life. I'm not, but she's still a model for me, model of humility, model of patience, model of pondering these things in her heart, obedience, faithfulness, and so forth. But you could ask the same question to the person that raises this objection and say, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So he carried this far beyond Mary. He went to the absolute source of perfection and said, be like God. So you might just as well say, well, I could never do that because, you know, God is infinite and perfect and I'm not. Well, that you can see where the, where the objection begins to dissolve. It's not that we are to be identical in 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 absolute uh, er, in absolutely every way, but it's, that is what we're striving for. We're and, striving to be like our Father in heaven. We're striving to be like our Blessed Mother. And this challenge that some people make, you know, how can Mary be our model? I mean, she right. was perfect. She was immaculate. You're, you're yeah. setting up a false uh, goal for us, though it, it it connects in with with some of the sad parts of our own modern culture that we don't want to bruise the self image of our young people by setting too high a standard. Setting too high of a standard right. for them, you know, and that's and why everybody is flying so low. Yeah, because there is there uh, there are no high standards being set. There's nothing. People aren't shooting for anything. Yes. Yeah, and this issue of Mary as model, uh, bringing it right down to our everyday lives, we see in her, her own walk, great images that should touch us in our actions and in our intimate life in prayer, for example, we're challenged. And I, again, back to that passage in, in Luke, where we all know it so well, you know, Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. But, but it, it's really a message to each one of us. Many, I think, modern Catholics forget the fact that God is very intimate to us in what is the plan of our life, what God wants to accomplish through each one of us. We see the Mother Teresa's who've said very clearly with her life, whatever your will is, Lord. But that same call is to each one of us. And when we look at Mary, it, it's to become a mental, visible reminder that this point in her life when she was willing to totally say, Lord, I know what you have for me is beyond my ability, but I know it's the best for me. That's the model for us every day of our life. So when it comes to having another child, evangelizing your neighbor, studying that book that you know you should be studying to learn your faith. To see, model, to see Mary as a model for that. Suffering with Christ. Let me give you an yeah. example that in, in my own life that had just occurred to me a few days ago. I was speaking at a, at a parish in Pennsylvania. And I, I was picked up to be driven to the parish by a delightful young father. This, this young man might have been maybe 30 years old and just a very, very joyful, uh, friendly, big smile on his face. And he was driving me in his, in his car to the church. And we got to talking about his family. And, of course, I'm on, on the road this week, so I'm missing my family an awful lot and my children. And I asked him about his family. He says, we have uh, four children and one of whom is in heaven. And I said, really? You know, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? And he said, with just this, this frankness and, and beautiful serenity, he said, uh, our three-year-old boy drowned a year ago. And, of course, I am, uh, being a father, and I have a two-year-old boy and a four-year-old daughter, among other children. And that hit me like a sledgehammer. And so I was trying to absorb what it must be like for this young father and his wife and their, their other children to deal with the death of a child like that, an innocent, beautiful child. And as we talked, I began to see this peace and serenity that he had. And he, he described, you know, there's a lot of pain. There still is a lot of pain. 
And I was feeling this pain sitting in, in this car with him. And I was, you know, moved to tears as he was describing this because I'm thinking about my own children. But as I reflected on that later in prayer, it, this whole issue of Mary came to my mind because I realized Mary went through that. Mary lost her little boy. And a parallel came out in my mind, and that is, think about our Blessed Lady in the Gospels where she loses Jesus at 12 years old in the temple for three days. He's gone. She doesn't know where he is. Is he hurt? Is he dead? Has he been carried off to Numidia as a slave? And she finally, to her great relief, she and, and Joseph discover Jesus in the temple. He's safe and sound. She loses him again in, in the tomb. Her little boy is lost for three days. And imagine the anguish of this mother. Uh, my, my son is gone. Will I see him again? What's going to happen? And then she encounters him again in the resurrection all over again. And that said to me, and listening to this young father talk, you know, Mary and what she went through is something that you can, can relate to as a parent, me personally. Uh, God forbid any of my children should die. But another example with Mary, she had to let her son go and go perform his ministry. At a certain point, all parents have to stand back and watch their children leave and go. So when we talk about Mary as a model, it penetrates every aspect of the Christian life raising children, dealing with death, dealing with personal struggles. And I, I see Mary standing behind every single life lesson that I have to learn. Add to that list of things that we need to let go of. That sometimes are plans for the future, what we dream. I mean, I look at my own experience of six years ago being a Protestant pastor with a career set ahead of me, but a part of God's plan for my wife and myself and my children. There were, yeah, there were no hotels when G, uh, St. Joseph woke her up and said, let's go, we're going to Egypt. Going to Egypt. That's right. Yeah. And the last thing I ever thought about doing is becoming a Catholic. But it was, Lord, whatever you would, we, we have to allow our plans and our futures and even the negative aspects of those journeys to, to recognize, as it says in Romans 8, that all things work together for good, yes. that love God, are called according to his purpose. Trust God's desire and will for us is always better. Let's pull this together as a as one big picture. And I'd like to leave you with this thought here. And that is that we are the body of Christ as the members of the church. And the theologians have, have reminded us for ages that when Mary sees the church, she sees Christ. So part of her maternity for the church is because we are in Christ, we are members of the mystical body of Christ. And I'd like to, to I like to reflect and I'd suggest this to you that when we see Mary throughout the Gospels, She's always with Christ. Even at the times of his greatest sufferings, she's right there. Maybe she can't directly step in and make something different, but she's with him. She's praying for him. She's she's encouraging him. She's at the foot of the cross. She's at the tomb and so forth. In the, in the Acts, she's with the apostles. With the apostles. And this is true for us right now. We are the body of Christ. Mary is with us every step of the way. And when the church looks like it's in the midst of its darkest days, when we're being persecuted, when we're being ridiculed, in, in times of triumph, our Blessed Lady is with us every step of the way, just as she was with Christ. Yeah. If we're with Christ, she will be with us. Um, that, that leads me to another question. I, I'm sure that the listeners have had this happen to them. I know because it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you since you became a Catholic. People say, uh, look, I love Jesus. I go to Mass, right? I pray to Jesus. Why do I need to honor the Blessed Mother? Why do I need to say the Rosary? Um, doesn't it take away from my love for Christ? That, that, that one we hear all the time, oh, yeah. right? You use that yourself yes. to draw people away from the Catholic. That's right. That's right. And it, again, came from our ignorance. 
from my ignorance in the past of not understanding really what the Catholic Church teaches about praying to Mary, praying the rosary. Um, and then sadly, in coming into the church, I've though bumped into many Catholic laymen and women that don't know the background behind the rosary, don't know its significance. They feel funny about honoring Mary, putting flowers in front of her statue or something like that. That's right. Um, there's some ways to really to express the not just the beauty of honoring Mary, but but how right it is in light of Scripture. Uh, let me share a couple of, of techniques I've used. The first one is to use an analogy of two kings. The analogy goes like this. You've got one king, you're, go, you're going into the throne room, and as you're walking in, first thing you notice is you're walking on a diamond-studded carpet, which is amazing in its beauty. And then you see these beautiful tapestries on the walls, and you see all the courtiers filling this, this large hall, their beautiful clothes. These, these people are just scintillating in their, in their apparel, beautiful music and so forth. As you walk further and further into the throne room, you get closer to the king's throne, you see how resplendent in glory he is, and everything around him is just shimmering in this glory. Well, then the second king is ensconced in a, in a throne room. You walk into the room, immediately you notice, I'm standing on a concrete floor. There's nothing on the walls. In fact, there's nobody in the room. There's no music, there's no people, but at the far end of the room, there's this resplendent king in all of his glory. And... These are two models, really. The first one is the Catholic model. God is so glorious and magnificent that he lavishes glory and magnificence on everything and anyone around him. Any of his friends participate in his beauty. The second king is a model that many of our non-Catholic friends tend to follow when they think about God. God is so jealous of his own glory. He's so concerned that I might get caught up in looking at a tapestry for a few minutes that he has everything eliminated so that all I can look at is him. Now, sure, he's a glorious king, but my thesis is, which king, if you stood back and look at both, is more glorious? Well, certainly the first one, for that reason. That's why we see no problem in, in praising a sunset or a mountain range or the, the magnificent work that Christ wrought in his mother Mary, the, the perfection of grace in her, or any of the saints. The second technique that I use is to uh, talk about uh, this fictional couple, you know, a fiancé, and she and her the young woman, the young man are sitting and talking and they're deeply in love and, you know, it's just they're starstruck. And the the young man says to the woman, he says, I love you more than I love myself. I love you with all of my being. I want to be with you every second of the day. I want to share my life with you. My heart is yours. But I'm not interested in going to meet your parents. I'm not interested in your brothers and sisters. I could care less about your friends. Uh, I don't want to look at your high school yearbook. I don't, in fact, I don't want to know anything or anyone that has to do with your past or your family. All I want to do is focus on you. Isn't that absurd when you think about it? Kind of a little twisted. Yeah. But yeah. think about how many people are walking around with exactly that attitude toward Christ. This whole idea of me and Jesus, and that's it, is completely unbiblical. The biblical model is, Lord, I love you, and anything that pertains to you, your friends, your family, where you live, what you said, that is vitally important to me, and I want to know everything I can about that. In this sense, Our Lady is a doorway not only to what Jesus loves. He loves his mother. He right. loves his father. But his cousin, Jude, who's an apostle, and his yeah. friends and disciples, and the, the church itself. Think of this big family reunion we're going to have when we get to heaven. <laughs> I know. As I'm listening to you, of course, it's, it's cut into the quick of my own past, because I was a Jesus-only. But I, I, so you know. I remember, I remember we used to have, once a year at least, a 24-hour prayer vigil in our Protestant church. 
and I'd plan, everyone would sign up for a half hour, and we'd gather all night long. I'd never heard of adoration. We would gather, and we'd gather in this empty sanctuary mm. with no icons, no pictures, and no Jesus. Mm. And we would pray, and I, I couldn't put my finger on, there's something goofy about this, because we could have been doing this in Bob Evans or something. It didn't make a difference where. But now when you look at it from the perspective of adoration, mm -hmm. you know, we're in the presence of Jesus. Now, many Catholics have gone to taking Jesus in the, pre uh, in the real presence for granted. Mm -hmm. We've done the same thing with Mary. I, I think about she's a, what you're saying, very much a part of the gospel. Yes. Very much a part of the, but yet we kind of take him for granted. And I, we were talking a little earlier about uh, recently uh, in a store, uh, a salesman saw my three boys and noticed that they were the same ages as his own children. And the first thing he did in our discussion was reach into his wallet and pull it out, open it up, and show me his family. Mm -hmm. And as he showed me the pictures of his children, you could see the gleam in his eye as he was drawing our attention away from himself. Just to people he loved. To people he loved. Right. That's the same divine humility that Jesus demonstrates to us when he points us to his mother. He's not drawing his attention away from him, but he's showing the great act of his love in those that he has redeemed. Well, there, there's also the, the objection that people give you to uh, statues of Mary, pictures of the Holy Family. It's along the same lines. Fulton Sheen has the story, again, of the, the guy who goes to his fiancé's house, and he looks around, and there's no pictures of the fiancé's mother. Mm. And he says, Where, where's your mother? And the, 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 his fiancé says, I don't want to talk about her. I love her. Yeah, but she's, uh, not she's not important. Let's talk about you. <laughs> and when people talk to me and they say, well, yeah, the Catholics, you have statues of Mary's. And, and I got to admit, sometimes it gets out of hand with the stuff in the car, you know. The, but we carry around pictures to remind us of the people we love. We have a statue of Mary, not to worship Mary, but to remind us of her That's and right. of her son and of his church. In fact, I was telling you earlier about that picture that's now in the center of our living room at home. It was a picture of the Holy Family that my wife had inherited from her Protestant grandfather when he died. It had been in the family for many, many years, maybe 80, 90 years. And it's a picture of the nativity scene. And we, what's, what we've come to recognize is that we used to just see that as the nativity scene, thinking of it as a nativity uh, incident, and focus on Jesus the baby. We never focused on the individuals in that picture. In becoming Catholic and understanding the significance of Joseph. We're not talking about Joseph here, but as a Protestant, we never talked about Joseph. The significance of Joseph and the significance of Mary. And then the significance of Jesus. We then came to appreciate the Holy Family in a way that we right. never did because we were able to look more closely at the individuals in the family. The danger at one end of the spectrum that we have to avoid is treating God's friends that we read about in Scripture as though they were props. You know, they're not pieces of furniture. They're there for a reason. Uh, we can get they're caught. real. They're real. They're real people. They're with God right now. They're in fact, they're more alive than you and I are. I guess an interesting, almost schizophrenic thing. Uh, I remember as a Protestant, we took Scripture so importantly that every little nuance of a verb was absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. But then we'd run into the to the name Mary and jump over it yeah, to the next word. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, you couldn't be more right about that. I think the uh, there is some this is a phenomenon that I've noticed among many Catholics, and that is in, in out of a spirit of charity and, and ecumenism, there's an effort to show all the places in which we are similar with non-Catholics, mainly, say, evangelical Protestants. And you'll hear the phrase a lot these days, 
Mary points us to Jesus. And there's this emphasis on, you know, for example, in uh, John 2, do whatever he tells you, John 2, 15, I believe, where Our Lady at the, at the uh, wedding at Cana is speaking to the servants, that's us, and says, do whatever he tells you. And so that motif is very popular. But I like to go further and say, Jesus points us to Mary. And, and that is a radical statement when you just speak it out in the world because, A, a lot of people cringe when they hear that because they say, oh, right, that's what I thought about you Catholics. You're always focusing on Mary. Well, Christ focused on Mary. And the best way to prove it is to go through the Gospels, not, not even counting the Old Testament, but just go through the Gospels at every major section, every, every major crossing point in our Lord's life, every event, every milestone, Our Lady is there, all the way to the book of Revelation. When she appears in Revelation chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11 is the Ark of the Covenant. And then immediately the next breath, John says, after he sees the Ark of the Covenant in, in the heavens, he says, then a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, 12 stars as a crown on her head and so forth. Our Lady appears at every juncture. And this is no accident. The thing that I think we have to remind people is that Christ, and let's maybe more specifically, the Holy Spirit inspired scripture with these vignettes in them for a reason. So it is absolutely true for us to say Christ points us to Mary. Why does he point us to Mary, Marcus? Well, you talk about the, the specific example in Scripture, mm -hmm. uh, which even as you're talking reminds me of, again, how blind I was to before. But that place in the, in the whole salvation uh, history, pinnacle of Jesus on the cross, there is Mary and Jesus' statement First to Mary, son, behold, behold your son. But to John, he doesn't say, John, I want you to take care of my mother. Woman. It's, well, behold your, your mother. mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Yeah. It's not, John, take, hey, take care of my mother for me while I'm gone. Or, or my brothers will take care of her. It's, hey, John, son, or. Son, behold your mother. Behold your mother. To focus on that, that idea of, our mother, as uh, not just a superfluous reference to this uh, accidental woman in the life of Jesus, but he is drawing all the attention from the cross to those that are still there following. In his final moments. Final words. Yeah, exactly. You would think that in the final moments that our, our Lord would, would be, and he did, but I mean, if you're thinking, what would our Lord want to say at the very end of his life, he's almost ready to pronounce the words, it is finished and give up the ghost. What are the last few important things he has left to say? And he turns our attention to Mary. That's striking. Now, to build on that, we, I mentioned earlier about how the Ark of the Covenant is prefigured, a prefigurement of Mary. We see it in Revelation chapter 11. The Ark of the Covenant appears in verse 19. Then we see the image of the woman clothed with the sun and the, the crown of stars. Now, notice that I, I want to bring this back to Mary's maternity. But notice in chapter 12, there is a huge red dragon crouching nearby, waiting for this woman to give birth to her child. This section, up to about verse 9, is a great parallel with the infancy narrative. Herod is like that dragon. Herod is crouching, waiting to kill the child. What does God do? He takes the Holy Family out into the desert of Egypt to preserve them safely so Herod can't kill them. It's exactly what God does in Revelation 12 with the woman. He takes her out to a place of safety in the desert. So the, the dragon's effort is foiled. Now, the dragon gets very angry, and he's trying to figure out a way that he can attack the woman and the, the child. So we read in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12, Then the dragon became angry with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her children, 
those who keep God's commandments and bear witness to Jesus. The woman is Mary, and the next time somebody says to you, well, Mary's not my mother, you say, well, hey, if you, if you bear witness to Jesus and if you keep the commandments, she sure is, and that's what the Bible says. And this is no accident. That's my point. Christ is pointing us in this direction not to take our focus away from him, but to show us how we should focus on him. Mary is that, that, that way, the model, as, you, as Bud was saying the earlier. The magnifier of the Lord. Exactly. My soul magnifies the Lord. That reminds me of um, Mary's response to Elizabeth, where she made a prophecy in the Bible. If you believe in biblical prophecy, Mary made the prophecy where she said, My soul magnifies the Lord. She wants to say, And all generations shall call me blessed. Unless you call Mary blessed, you're not fulfilling that prophecy. Every time you say the, Holy, the, the Hail Mary, where you call Mary blessed among women, you're fulfilling a biblical prophecy. That's right. Which is fascinating. So if you want to be part of this generation who calls Mary blessed, you, you need to have devotion to her. That's right. And calling her blessed means recognizing, giving an audible, heartfelt expression to her place in salvation history. She is blessed. That's an affirmation that we are to make. Not flippantly, it's not a flippant thing, it, it, it's a conviction. Yes. Let me throw a curveball here, if I may, having to do with, with our lady's role. I always had trouble hitting the curve. <laughs> <laughs> we often, as Catholics, get uh, questioned or challenged, whatever the term is, with regard to our lady's immaculate conception. The immaculate conception, defined by Pope Pius IX, is the dogma that our lady was preserved free from all sin, both original and actual, from the moment of her conception. And from that time forward, she was preserved in a state of radical grace throughout her life. Now, the, the after effects of the Immaculate Conception are several, including the, the assumption. But for, for the sake of our discussion here, all of us and everybody who listens to this tape, who is Catholic at one point or another, will have been questioned or challenged about the issue of you know, Mary and her Immaculate Conception. And one of the common arguments that is raised goes like this, and this is a good thing to know about. Sometimes people will say to you, well, uh, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He came to save us from our sins. He died on the cross for our sins. Now, in Luke chapter 1, you were quoting that a moment ago, Mar or, um, but in which you were quoting the Magnificat, Mary says, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the objection takes this form. They say, now, wait a minute. You Catholics are being inconsistent here. The Bible says, Mary says in the Bible, that God is her Savior, and yet you Catholics say that Mary was free from all sin, so what did she need a Savior for? What was she saved from? So therefore, if Mary herself said that she needed a Savior and that God was her Savior, then clearly she could not have been immaculately conceived. That's the this superficial the logic that is used. That's the gist of the argument. Here's, a, here's a, a, a vivid way to explain this without knowing a tremendous amount of Scripture. It, it goes very quickly like this. Imagine, did you ever see the movie, uh, The Swiss Family Robinson? They're on that island, and the, the little boy, Fritz, digs a pit to catch a tiger. Well, imagine this pit covered over with branches and leaves and things. We don't see it. And our being conceived is as though a man's walking along, and in the very process, he, he, he steps into this pit, he crashes through, and he lands in the slime. And he cries out, Lord, save me. So the Lord reaches down and pulls him out, sets him down, cleans him off. And he says, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Now, the woman walking along, she doesn't see the pit, <clears throat> and at, just as she puts her foot down on, on this you know, false uh, covering there, and she's about to plunge into this pit, 
she's teetering right on the brink. The Lord reaches out and, and stops her from falling in, sets her down safely on the side, and she says to him, Lord, thank you for saving me. Now, both people were saved. Now, she was, in effect, in fact, saved in a more wonderful way than the first one. You and I fall into the pit and get covered up with goop. God loved Mary in such a way that he prevented her. It's kind of like God cured us from cancer, but he prevented her from ever getting it. But in either case, Mary is absolutely right in saying, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior, because God did save her from sin. And it was because of what Christ did for her on the cross. So we Catholics should never be worried or bothered when somebody uses this verse. We should say, amen, God saved Mary from and sin. And now Genesis 3.15 actually makes sense. It makes sense. Because there's enmity between the woman and the serpent. And it's always done because of what Christ did on the cross, as Pope Pius IX said. He said, in light of the merits won for her by her son Christ on the cross, this is what was done for Mary. Well, even in this gospel passage, Christ has not died and been and, and resurrected yet. She's saying he saved, she, he's the Savior before he's exactly. even... Exactly. Often the misunderstanding in this doctrine of Immaculate Conception is because of the wrong focus. They're somehow focusing on Mary rather than grace. Right. Because grace is the point in the Immaculate Conception. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That comes at the place in our lives when grace changes us through baptism. Right. Well, that happened to Mary. Exactly. Before she was born. And, and it was not of her own doing. This, God, yes. this fits, perfectly, it fits perfectly with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Exactly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from you. This is the gift of God. It is not from works, so no one may boast. So when we boast about the glories of Mary, we're really boasting about what God did in her. And, and, and far from this idea that there's this, this sort of works righteousness view of Mary and, her, and her, her beauty and her sanctity, far from it. The Bible says this is a gift of God. But the beautiful thing is what Mary received is promised to all of us. Yes. She just got the cash value up front. We get ours over our lives in, when we get to heaven. But everything we see in Mary, her, her freedom from sin, her assumption into heaven, her regal, royal uh, rule in heaven with Christ her son. It's promised for all Christians. You go to the book of Revelation and you read about the Christians in heaven ruling with on thrones and with crowns and their kings and their judges and all these things. We're seeing all of this wrapped up in Mary and what people forget is that's ours. We're going to get that too. It reminds me of something Father Ken Roberts says about uh, why Mary is pure, why she why she can see without sin. He says, well, first of all, how would you make your own mother if you could make her? Christ made his own mother. And then he said, if you have something perfect, the perfect liquid, let's say, right, and Jesus is perfect, would you pour it into a beer stein? Would you put something pure into an impure container? Well, Mary is, as you said earlier, an Ark of the Covenant. She's the tabernacle where Christ lived inside. We're not talking about an analogy here. Jesus Christ himself, before he was born, lived in the womb of the Blessed Mother, shared the blood through her uterus. Right. This, this brings up one small point that's very important for Catholics to know. The, the church historically has always argued for the Immaculate Conception based on the argument from fittingness. It was fitting, it was proper, it was right, it was just that God should do this. We don't argue, and Catholics should not make the mistake of arguing from the standpoint of that he had to do this. Yeah, and, and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, bud, because you've, you've talked about this too. The thing is that if we make the mistake of arguing that God had to make Mary immaculately conceived because, after all, Christ would be living in this, this body 
the blood running through his own veins, receiving his humanity from a corrupt human being, that that couldn't happen. That's the wrong way to argue because all we have to do is to recognize that Mary's mother was not immaculately conceived. And Mary, the immaculate conception, the perfect specimen of humanity, was living in a fallen human body. In the mother, in, in the womb of her mother, who was a Saint fallen Anne. creature, a very holy woman. Yes, Saint Anne, very holy, very devout woman, no doubt. But nonetheless, we always want to approach this issue from the standpoint it was fitting and right that God did it. He didn't have to do it, but this just shows forth his glory that he would do this. Just to tag on to that, just to remind our listeners that each one of us is a Christ bearer. Mary is our model of the immaculate conceived Christ bearer, the pure ark. But every one of us is called to be a Christ bearer, modeling uh, ourselves after Mary. But that means that each one of us, because of our impurity, has, through the help of Mary, through, through grace, through the sacraments, help us to become pure and clean vessels through which we can present Christ every day to the world. Right. For a lot of our listeners, I think that maybe probably for the majority, they, they first hear about Our Lady, they first come to know her, maybe not uh, in, in a conscious kind of a way, through private revelation. By that I mean Fatima or Lourdes, they hear about the reports that Mary's at Medjugorje. All over the world, we hear about these private revelations. What are they? And are there any distinctions that we should make? There are. The, the first distinction is that there is a difference between general revelation and private revelation. General revelation is the deposit of faith. What Christ and the apostles, and then prior to that point, the Old Testament prophets, what was given by God to the human race in the form of revelation that everybody is bound under? Scripture, sacred tradition, as interpreted both of them by the magisterium. That's the deposit of faith, and that ceased with the death of the last apostle, the apostle John. So it's an article of our faith that there is no added general revelation. There's no doctrine that can be invented or added or accreted onto the church at any later point. Everything we believe now was, was handed on once for all to the saints during the apostolic age. We've grown in our understanding of it, and the illumination has gotten greater, but nothing has changed. That is distinct from the issue of private revelation. Now, private revelation is something that we see manifested throughout Scripture and from the apostolic time forward in which God would speak to people directly or one of the saints would speak to people directly for the purpose of informing them of some particular issue or guiding them to do a certain thing or to, to prevent them from making a mistake in a certain direction. And private revelation is not binding upon the church as a whole. In fact, Technically speaking, it's not binding upon anyone else, but the one to whom it is given. So in a very, if we want to take a certain reductionist approach to this, even the Marian apparitions, even approved Marian, even approved Marian apparitions, Our Lady of Fatima, Lourdes, etc., Guadalupe, all of those are incumbent upon the people who received the apparitions. But common sense tells us, due to the nature of the apparitions and what was what was said there, what was done, that this was done to help all of mankind. Notice one thing. Private revelations, authentic private revelations, never have anything to do with doctrine in the sense of revealing some kind of a doctrine or in giving some new information that didn't exist before. It's always either illuminating something that has come before or offering practical information on it here and now. It reminds me of a general giving orders to the troops or mm-hmm. direction to the troops. He's not teaching them about warfare. Right. He's telling them, here's what God, uh, you know, by... Take that by hill, 
dig that trench. Do this. Yes, do that. exactly. Um, when I speak, I often uh, run into this because the Mary Foundation people, uh, when I speak, people ask me all the time, do I really have to follow these? Can I ignore this? I said, sure, you can ignore private revelation. But if you do, remember that, that you know, stop praying the rosary, take off your scapula. Devotion to the Sacred Heart is very suspect because that was private revelation to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. And, and don't talk to Franciscans because Francis started his... Uh, his apostolate, let's say, with a prior revelation from our Lord, and ended his life with uh, the stigmata, having seen a revelation of an angel. Now, Marcus, we were talking earlier about, uh, you had a real fascinating insight on private revelation. Well, Scripture makes a statement in in 1 John. Beloved, do not trust every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they belong to God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in that statement alone, it's telling us that this is going to be a continuing phenomenon, okay? That the Spirit's going to continue speaking to us, not in new dogma, not new uh, doctrine in the church, but that we're going to continue to have a relationship with God in which he communicates to us. And as you were saying, Pat, God continues to speak to us. And um, Tell the story. Yeah, I was going to say that we often are are wondering, if, well, if God speaks to me, is it going to be in this this ecstatic, visionary uh, experience, what might be. But very often, in fact, every day, our listeners need to know that God wants to speak with us, to help us in guiding our life. My own example uh, I was sharing with you earlier was one night getting ready to speak before a a large audience, and I was very nervous. I wasn't sure what I would say. Uh, I was to go on in 10 minutes, and I was out walking around a garden outside the, the parish, very nervous. Wondering if I had anything worthwhile to say to this group of people who had come to hear me speak. And as I was praying, asking the Lord to help me. Now, even in asking the Lord in prayer, I'm hoping that he'll respond to me, to my prayers. And he did. It, for at least one time in my life, I know I heard the audible words of our Lord, at least in my mind. And his word was very clear. He said, get out of the way. Just get out of the way. And the message to me was, don't worry about it. Let me speak through you to these people. Well, that message was really for who? For me. It was a word of encouragement to me, knowing, as Scripture said, that the Holy Spirit gives us the words we need to be able to speak. And the hope, and because you listened to him, yes. it was also for the people who heard you speak. Yes. Right. Yes, yes there was a prophetic dimension to what, to what you were told. Can I, can I offer you a biblical account of something that's a counterbalance to this? Catholics need to be aware that, as you were saying, we have to test the spirits. There's a, a wonderful biblical example of where, you know, people say, well, you could tell by the fruits and look, look at what is being said. It's not always as easy as it sounds. In Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul is in uh, Philippi and picking up in verse 16, it says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl with an oracular spirit. She was possessed by a devil who used to bring a large profit to her owners through her fortune telling. She began to follow Paul and us shouting, These people are the slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She did this for many days. Paul became annoyed, turned to her and said in the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Then it came out of her at that moment. So the the moral to the story is she was going around bringing people to Paul and saying, Listen to him. He's, he's, He's coming from God. He's telling you something that's important. But Paul saw through that and he realized this is not coming from God. This is coming from the evil one. So the fact that she was saying this wasn't enough. This is why it's so important that we follow the church in its careful and, and painstaking way of approving or disapproving an apparition. 
especially in this day and age, yes. even as we speak of the very recent tragedy, were these yes. people following a leader, uh, were they testing the spirits correctly? And the danger is, that's why we need this blessed church that Christ has given to us as a teacher, to trust the teacher to help us know what is true, because we live in an age where there are, we're surrounded by voices trying to pull us in every which direction. We have to hear the voice of our shepherd. Yes. Yes. There's one last point on this passage that really bears our investigation, and that is that she said, the Bible tells us that she was saying, these, are pe these people are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. And there's the subtle error. There's only one way to salvation. That's through Jesus Christ. That's what Mary proclaims. That's what the church proclaims. That's what Catholics should proclaim. And this woman, for all intents and purposes, was doing a great work in prophesying in the Spirit. But it was from the evil one because she was saying this is only a way of salvation. And our message as Catholics and Mary's message to us is the only way of salvation is through Christ and only through Christ. And so all of our efforts at not only sharing our faith and Christ and the church and our Blessed Lady, all of it is, is, is zeroing in on that one central issue. That's the point of all of this. The point of the warnings, the point of all the different things that people talk about. It's that this is our way of salvation and only this way. I think about it again in terms of my own journey for a moment that I came from not having any part in my theology for Mary at all to becoming a Catholic and accepting the reality of Mary and then continuing to move in my own spiritual journey to accepting the possibility that Mary might be appearing or is she speaking today to the church and uh, finding in that the great diversity of understanding about whether Mary is appearing or not or what is she saying or what is the purpose of this or how should we respond to that and all of that can become very paralyzing in our lives, especially when we have people that only hear bits and pieces of all of this. And so we, on the one hand, need to be, there needs to be some caution. But on the other hand, we need to look at our own internal skepticism to the reality of miracles. Do we believe that God can still do miracles? Do we believe God can still speak in our hearts or in the hearts of a very faithful person? So we have to keep that balance. As you're saying there, look out for the false prophets. But let's, on the same token, this don't throw out the real exactly. problem. Because if, exactly. God, if God, exactly. if God, not Mary, but if God spoke to his church through the mother of the church, let's say Fatima, yes. which is born in the test of time, which is fully proved, or the key to Japan, which is also proved, where there are some very startling revelations about the yes. coming tribulations, let's say. If God is speaking to her people, to his people, through his mother, it's not like the Old Testament, he's speaking through a prophet, Mary is who's, uh, infallible. He's the queen of prophets. He's serious. He wants us to pay attention. Yeah. He doesn't want us to throw everything else away in our lives and right. throw away all the sacraments or whatever. That's a false way. That's exactly. not the way. And Marcus, you're absolutely right. It's this issue of balance, this authentic Christian approach to these very important issues. We don't want to get pulled into one extreme or another. One of the things I've found uh, as a measuring stick for our listeners, for maybe, let's say, judging others, regarding authentic Marian, effort, uh, Marian devotion is, does your devotion to Mary draw you to Christ? Does it draw you to the church? Does it draw you to the sacraments, which are really intimate um, relationships with Christ? The, the confession is an intimate relationship with Jesus. You're speaking to Jesus through the priest. That Mass, you're receiving his body and blood. If your Marian devotion is leading you to Scripture, to the sacraments, to, to the church, to prayer then it's 
then it's authentic. Then it's what Mary would want. The balance comes when I know people that have spent thousands of dollars to fly halfway around the world to get closer to Jesus, when all they've got to do is to go into their sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Down the street. Down the street, and there's Jesus. So we speak of Mary as mediatrix of all graces. What are we talking about? Well, to, rather than get in a deep theological discussion, which is, is uh, on one hand, very difficult, but on the other hand, it is so simple and personal to us. But pray for me. You're uh, serving as an advocate. Mm -hmm. You know, lift me before the Father. There's a sense in which you are acting partially as a mediator for me. Co, not meaning equal to. Co means with. Co-redeemer. Every one of us. We Catholics know about suffering with Christ mm -hmm. and that our sufferings have redemptive value. Right. That's what the old theology, the wonderful theology, yeah. will offer it up. Right. Let me give you a, a Bible verse that fits in perfectly with what you're saying. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, St. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. Now he's not saying that Jesus didn't suffer enough for us on the cross. What he's really saying, and this is the, the whole point of co-redemptrix, is that Christ not only suffered for us on the cross, he suffers through us, and that our sufferings have this redemptive value if we want them to, if we allow them to, and offer them with Christ on the cross to the Father. In, in St. Paul here, if this doctrine of co-redemption is not true, then Paul's words are gibberish. Yes, read those words again. St. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. He, he, he specifies in several places that this type of suffering, one for another, is vital to the Christian life. It's not just a, an afterthought or something that's nice for certain people to do and not others. It's all well, Second Christians. Corinthians, verse 1, talks about we are comforted that we might comfort. Right. Yeah. Well, one other verse here, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, another very important verse. Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over my afflictions for you. This is your glory. Paul's suffering for the church is showing forth the glory of God in the church. And there is this redemptive value of that suffering. And the same, of course, preeminently is true of Mary. This, this possible new dogma that is uh, like a groundswell. A groundswell, as it's even called vox populi, is that the voice of the people uh, is not, we have to make sure listeners understand that it's not a new doctrine. It's not a new doctrine. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the church. It's part of the deposit of clearly faith. Clearly defining more specifically what we are to believe in this. This is something that's been believed throughout the history well, of the church. similar to the Immaculate Conception, which was in use for centuries and yes. centuries and centuries. When well, the Pope went to the people, through, right. he, he contacted all the bishops of the world yeah. yes. and asked him asked them, say, what do the people believe of the Immaculate Conception? And he exactly. came back with a, a huge thumbs up from all over the world. And this, and this is a subtle point. It, not, it wasn't just that it was in use, so to speak, for all these centuries. It was true from the moment it happened. Just like the Trinity was always true, even though it took the church 300 years to define it as a dogma of the faith at the First Council of Nicaea in the year 325. But it was true all along, even though if it wasn't very well thought out or explained or articulated. And the same is true of these other doctrines. It's a very exciting movement towards this dogma because if you think about it, the first four dogmas about Mary define something very clear about Mary. Mother of God, immaculately conceived, Assumed, assumed into heaven. Um, well, you're, you're okay. We've got the virgin birth, the the immaculate conception, the mother of God, 
and the assumption into heaven. All tell us something about Mary. Right. I'm st- I've been a Catholic five years, you know, right. but I'm still right. growing and all these right. things. But still the learning how to count. But what's exciting is that they tell us about her. If we believe those, right. now this fifth possible dogma, as it were, defines what those four things mean in her relationship to us. Good to Bible God. passage that we should that we should uh, remind everybody about. First Timothy two five. Saint Tim or Saint Paul says to Timothy in this passage, he begin or there's a, a passage that's very often quoted uh, where he says. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's obviously right. uh, the bedrock of our faith. Now, a Protestant might say, well, that disproves this idea of Mary being a mediator or, or in some way praying for us or interceding oh. for us. Not at all. That's in verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 starts like this. St. Paul says, First of all, then, I ask that supplications, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be offered for everyone. <laughs> then he goes on to say in verse 3, This is good and pleasing to God our Savior. So he starts the, the whole discussion of what a mediator is by saying, pray, supplicate, petition, offer thanksgivings, and so forth for everybody, because God likes this. My, my suggestion to all of us is to look at our rosary, as the Holy Father says, as our Ark of the Covenant, Mary with us, with her people. So when you're facing the evil of abortion, the evil of, of pornography, the evil of, of, of anti-life governments, and all, all the other things, we don't want weapons of war, violence, or any of those other things. We take the Ark of the Covenant with us, and that's how we win our battles. It reminds me of uh, Joe Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League records these former abortionists, mm. and they get, they all go on and on about if there's a priest, if there's a group of Catholics outside saying the rosary, everything goes crazy inside mm. their clinic. And the women get up off the table and walk oh, yeah. out, and they're, they're not yeah. doing it by screaming and shouting or whatever. Yeah. They're doing it with the, the Ark of the Covenant. As long as we're talking about John Paul II, I mean, he will go down in history as the one of the great Marian popes. Just, pope John Paul the Great is what I'd like to start thinking yeah, of. Yeah, the greatest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for Pope John Paul. I mean, and and it's it's wonderful to behold the the beautiful things for the church that God is giving us through this man. In fact, in his recent uh, Wednesday audience, just uh, this week, right? just this week, he uh, addressed the issue of Mary's place at the cross. And participating in the redemption, and we don't have the entire uh, manuscript before us, but uh, the reports of his uh, talk are that, in fact, uh, he is defending just this dogma which we're talking about, yes. emphasizing Mary's place in salvation. I just want to give one real, very quick quote that is something to reflect on. He says, "Mary's hope at the foot of the cross." Now, we stop for a second and think about Mary at the foot of the cross and what was happening there as she let go of her son uh, to death. It's hard for us to see in that hope. But as as John Paul describes that whole incident, there was great hope in her heart as she was there knowing what was happening, knowing what this meant, knowing why he had been born, why he had come, and now why she's letting go of him. Mary's hope at the foot of the cross contains a light that is stronger than the darkness which reigns in many hearts. In the face of the redeeming sacrifice is born in Mary the hope of the church and of mankind. What a great blessing we have at this time in history to have this leader leading us with the Ark of the Covenant and drawing our attention to her suffering, but also the hope that she knew in her heart as she lifted her son up for our salvation. Our society, our the world in which we live is like Jericho. It's a fortified city of death. It's a fortified city of anti-life, anti-Christ attitudes and hearts, dark minds. And, and I believe, as you just said, Marcus, if we 
go forward. Uh, the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, is Joshua for today. Yeah. He is the Joshua leading his people. And our Blessed Lady is present with us in the Ark of the Covenant in the form of the Rosary and her maternal protection. We have nothing to fear. And we just have to use these tools, follow our Joshua, and then wait to see the great things that God will do. In my own private devotion, uh, as a still growing Catholic, and, and uh, there's going to be a long time in my life when all of my residual Protestant ideas are not still floating around somewhere in my gut there. But as I reflect on one particular uh, icon of Mary who's that's in our house, and reflecting on how that rendition of Mary helps us understand some of the qualities of her character, the part of that particular icon that always catches me is her eyes. Because in the way the artist portrayed her eyes reminds me of her her loving motherhood for me. Mm. Reminds me of the care of this mother. Reminds me of the hope that John Paul just spoke of as she looked at her dying son. But I see in those eyes uh, this very uh, gentle persuasion inviting me closer, ever closer with me knowing my past and the junk that is in there. And no, you two guys, neither of you have paths <laughs> to worry about. But in my past, yet seeing in Mary, inviting me to walk with her to her son. Because that's who she draws us to. Right. She leads us to her son. And that's how I've grown in my own understanding of Mary in my own private, is recognizing the winsome, even now tearful eyes of Mary. Mm -hmm as she invites us to walk with her to That's beautiful. We hope you were inspired by this podcast, and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary recording in the history of the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For an increase in the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. 
Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.